be seated. Your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We are starting our study of the book of Acts this morning. Uh, Very excited to do so. I think I said last week I love finishing books and just uh, coming to the end and the conclusion of books, but I also love starting new ones. And we uh, make the habit here of starting at the beginning of books of the Bible and working our way through the end of books of the Bible. And uh, rarely, rarely, rarely do we ever skip. I don't know that we've ever skipped a section. Uh, We certainly don't skip them because they're difficult, Um, even though I don't know that this one on its surface is difficult. uh, I do trust that it will challenge us. Um, It may be peculiar to you, if you're not used to doing this, uh, it may be peculiar to you that we sing songs from the 1500s and the 1600s. It may be peculiar to you that we stand up and read a book that was written written uh, probably in the 60s AD, like not the 1960s, just like the 60s uh, AD. And um, so to just read that and explain what it means and how it might affect us in our lives today, why in the world would we do such a thing? Well, uh, I was reminded as I was preparing this week of uh, a boss I had at one point and uh, he was he was a good boss. He was he was good to me. He taught me a lot about being a Marine. Uh, this was back when I was on active duty, and um, he was really smart. And he would always talk about, hey, if you want a new idea, read an old book. And he would always tell me this, like, hey, you want a really new, interesting, compelling idea? Just read old books. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And I, I, I had heard him say it a couple times, but it didn't really resonate with me. But I was sitting in a meeting, and, uh, and his boss was very impressed. And, and my boss had said something. My boss was Ronnie. And Ronnie had said something, and it was very compelling. And he's like, wow, that's, man, that's forward thinking. Everybody needs to be thinking like this. Everyone needs to be, it's innovative. It's, it's this new idea. And, uh, and he was like, well, thanks, thanks, sir. I appreciate it. And so we walk out, and, and Ronnie looks at me. He's like, see what I'm talking about? I was like, no, I don't see what you're talking about. He's like, That idea is in this book I've been reading, and the book was 60 years old, and it was full of footnotes from older books, right? So he kept telling me, look, if you want a great, new, innovative idea, read an old book. And uh, that that was true, and it's true, uh, just generally speaking, in life, to my knowledge, Ronnie is not a Christian, Um, but it's even more true with the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are living and active, they're living and active. So, so as I read the Bible, it, it actually is living and breathing. And even though the words aren't changing, as I go back and read passages that are very familiar to me, there's a lot of times that actually I get a new idea and the Holy Spirit speaks to me in a way that He never has through that same passage that I've read previously. And so if you want a new 
idea, read an old book, specifically read the scriptures as a Christian. And so today as we pick up a new book for us, the book of Acts, uh, to study as a church, I believe that we're going to have some brilliant new ideas, um, but just understand those brilliant new ideas to apply in our lives individually and on our life together as a church. It's just because we're picking up an old book, but more importantly, it's because we're picking up the Word of God. The Word of God that is living and active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces our hearts and convicts us of sin and propels us towards mission. So pick it up with me. Acts chapter 1, starting at the beginning. I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up. After He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Powerful, powerful passage about the ascension of Jesus Christ, but more importantly, it's about the last conversation that Jesus has with His apostles before His ascension. The title for the sermon this morning is Powerful Witnesses. Powerful Witnesses. What I believe uh, we're going to see in this first passage in the book of Acts, it is going to tell us that we are to be powerful witnesses for Christ in a long line of powerful witnesses for Christ. Witnesses of what, you may ask? Like, What are we supposed to be witnesses of? Well, witnesses of God's work in saving His people through Jesus Christ. Witnesses of God's work in saving His people through Jesus Christ. The way we're going to examine this passage is uh, we're going to fly over the whole thing and see like what does... Acts 1, 1 through 1-11 say in total what exactly is Luke doing here as he starts this book. And then we're going to focus in on what almost everyone who has uh, studied this book and all conservative scholars, they believe the outline of the book, the thesis of the book, the main idea of the whole book is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so we're going to examine Acts 1 in detail. Uh, and so here's kind of the big stopping points we'll have along our journey this morning. Uh, number one, we're going to talk about that this is an unfolding story. It is an unfolding story. 
Number two, we're going to see that we're going to see an age-old question. An age-old question. And number three, a Copernican-like shift. A Copernican-like shift. So number one, in verses 1 through 11, we see an unfolding story. An unfolding story. So pick it up with me and start reading with me. In the first book, O Theophilus... That's interesting, right? You're like, well, first book, what are we talking about? We're like well into the Bible. We are on, I believe this is book number 42 in how our Bibles are arranged when we come to the book of Acts. And we see that he says in the first book, O Theophilus, well, what is he talking about? Keep your hand or keep your finger there in Acts 1 and flip back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is just... Uh, Two books to the left, Luke chapter 1, and starting from the beginning of Luke chapter 1, the writer says this, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we believe that the writer of the book of Acts is a guy by the name of Luke. And Luke is the same guy that wrote the gospel, the good news, according to Luke. And so Luke is described in a couple ways throughout the New Testament. He's described as a historian and he's described as a physician. Right, so most of us would not hold both of those uh, job titles in our day, all right? but Luke was both. He was a historian and a physician. So when he says, I'm giving an orderly account, you can know that as a historian, he is going and giving an orderly account. And, and you can see in the book of Luke, it's very organized, it's very methodical, and he does give a very orderly account. And then we'll also see that in the book of Acts. It is an orderly account of what has occurred. And he's also a physician, uh, which means he's not dumb. Okay, so Luke is a smart guy. He's a physician. He understands how the world works. He understands how the body works. So when Luke sees something miraculous, he knows what he's seeing, and it's not just a, he's not confused about what he is seeing. So he's a historian and he is a physician. But what Luke, said, what Luke says at the beginning of Luke is this isn't the beginning. Jesus being born, he's going to go through the birth of Jesus Christ. He's going to go through the birth of John the Baptist in the book of Luke. He's saying, look, this isn't the beginning of the story. He says, look, there's been others, there have been other eyewitnesses, and these other eyewitnesses have actually handed the story to us. I'm picking up the story that I received, and I'm making an orderly account of the things that you've heard, and I'm carrying the story forward. So the question begs, what is the story that Luke is just picking up on? He has received the story. He is contributing his aspect of the story. He is contributing his perspective of the story. And he is carrying it forward. Well, what is the story? Well, the Bible begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so, in the beginning, there was one true God, and He created all things. And so, in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, we get an accounting of the creation. And the creation is good, it is perfect. We get the Creator God and His created uh, His creation in perfect harmony. Mankind Himself was created in the image of God. And there's perfect harmony, there's perfect authority, there's perfect submission between the man and his God, his fellow man, and his creation. Perfect harmony. The Hebrews would say, shalom. It is in perfect peace, perfect harmony, working with one another. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see that man has rebelled against God. And in so doing, when man rebelled against God, when man rejected the authority of God, it created a fracture in God's relationship with man. It created a fracture in man's relationship with God, man's relationship with one another, and man's relationship with his creation, and creation's relationship with itself. It fractured the entire system so that it is no longer Perfect peace, perfect shalom, it's no longer happening in that way. We live in a fallen, jacked up world. And again, we just see it all around us. We see it in our own bodies as they are falling apart. We see it as we are sick and sore and hurting. We see it in creation groaning. Again, if you've been watching the Weather Channel, is the Weather Channel not excited? People are watching them, right? And so uh, most people don't watch the Weather Channel every day, uh, except for my father-in-law. But when there's a hurricane coming... We watch the Weather Channel. What's going to happen? Where's it going to go? Oh, it zagged left, it zagged right. What's going to happen? Well, nature is groaning. It is groaning. We see all sin around us. We live in a fallen world. But also in Genesis chapter 3, we get a promise. And the promise was that God was going to make it right. And how was God going to make it right? God was going to make it right through a seed of the woman, through a person who was going to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And in Luke, when he picks up his story, he tells us, he accounts for us, that Jesus was born, the promised one was born. And his, his goal in the book of Luke is to convince us that Jesus is who He said He is, and Jesus is who He said He is, because He is the promised one from the Old Testament. He is the promised one from Genesis chapter 3. And so we see that God was on a mission to save His people. He was on the mission to save His people Himself and through a man, through a seed of the woman. And we see in Luke that Jesus Christ is that man. He reminds us of that at the beginning of the book of Acts. So back with me in the book of Acts. Luke tells us, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he tells us at the end of verse 3, what in the world did Jesus come to do and teach? He came to speak and to teach about the kingdom of God, that God is in the business, He is on mission to save His people. Another thing that Luke mentions here at the beginning of the book of Acts is that uh, Jesus gave commands in verse 2. He gave commands to His apostles through the Holy Spirit. 
And so we see that God is on mission to save His people. He's going to do it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to continue the mission through the apostles, these men who are going to carry forth the mission. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we see that there is a church. And there are actually many local churches that are part of the larger church. And so what we see is God is on mission. That mission is carried out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ commissions His apostles, and those apostles establish the church that continue the mission. The common thread is it is the mission of God, and what happens is how that is manifest in the world. And so we are in Acts, and Acts is a transitional book. It is a transitional book from the apostles to the church. The rest of the book is about the church. And so it is an unfolding story. An unfolding story of the mission of God through Jesus Christ, through the apostles, and later on through the church. Acts is a transitional book. Now, the well, most well-known verse in uh, probably in the book of Acts among Christians, especially among evangelical Christians uh, of our persuasion, is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, Pastor J.D. and I are going to be going to a conference this week at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's about two and a half hours away, north of Raleigh. And it is it touts itself. It's actually the seminary I attend, love the school. It touts itself as the Great Commission Seminary. And so if you go ask, like, what in the world is the Great Commission around campus, they will probably begin to quote for you, students and staff and faculty, they will probably begin to quote to you uh, the end of Matthew chapter 28. And so they'll say, well, we are to, as we go into the, all the world, we are to make disciples of all nations. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we are to teach the new disciples, all that Jesus has commanded, and that Jesus is going to be with us always to the end of the age. That is the Great Commission, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You'd be like, okay, well, is there, a, is there a sister passage? Is there a cousin passage to Matthew 28? The last words that Jesus spoke to His apostles, the last words that Jesus spoke to His disciples. And they would say, yeah, that's Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And you'd say, okay, well, what's, what's Acts 1 verse 8? They said, well, Jesus tells His disciples that they're going to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You'd be like, wow, that's good. You passed my quiz. Good job. Alright, here's the problem with familiar passages. Sometimes we assume what they say and we forget to go and read them. So I just want to make sure we get Acts chapter 1 verse 8 in its proper context and that we begin to understand Acts 1 8. So pick it up with me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But, wait a second, we've got to stop, right? We're not at the beginning of the thought, right? You don't start a thought with buts. Yet, however, right? you just don't start a thought that way. So let's, let's back up. Let's go back to verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. It's interesting in the, in the original language, it's, it's actually, and some of your translations probably pick up on this, verse 7 is actually, He answered and said to them. 
Like answer, oh, Jesus is answering a question, so I still can't get to the beginning of what's going on here because Jesus is answering a question. It'd be really helpful if I knew what the question was before I started to think about what the answer is that Jesus is giving. So we got to get up to Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, When they, the disciples, the apostles, had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So we got to think about that question for a second. And this is the second big peg to hang things on as we continue this morning. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, we see an age-old question. An age-old question. I don't know if anybody's ever asked this question of God. When, when is now the time? When? When is this going to happen? Right? The psalm, four different psalms contain the exact same phrase. And usually, three of those four, it's at the very beginning of the psalm, in the first verse or two. And it goes like this, How long, O Lord? And then the psalmist begins to recount the trouble that he is in and asks God, How long do I have to endure this? How long is this going to happen? And the disciples, the apostles, they're saying, is this the time? Is this when something is going to happen? Does anybody, has anybody come in here this morning asking God, when? When is this going to happen? When are you going to show me what the next phase of my life is? When are you going to show me the job? When is this boss not going to be my boss anymore? When are we going to have somewhere else to go? So often we ask when questions, don't we? So often we ask how long, O Lord, type questions. Let, let me answer you in this moment for a second as we think about this. In all four of those psalms where the psalmist asks the question, how long, O Lord, the psalmist does not get an answer. Doesn't get an answer. He actually works it out himself and decides by the end of all of them, I'm going to trust the one who knows the answer even when I don't get the answer. I'm going to trust God. He doesn't get the answer. You might be like, there's got to be a time in the Bible where somebody gets an answer to the question of how long, O Lord. It actually happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is given a commission by God. Some people like to get it like tattooed on themselves. Here am I, send me. God tells them, you're going to go and preach to a people who are never going to listen to you. And Isaiah answers and says, how long am I supposed to do this? You want me to go and proclaim your word to a people who are not going to listen to me. They're not going to repent. How long am I supposed to do this? God's answer, He actually answers him. And God answers until it looks like no one honors me. It's going to look like there is destruction everywhere. It's going to look like everyone has forsaken me. It's going to look far worse than it looks right now. That's how long. And Isaiah's like, whoa, okay. God does promise it's going to look like nobody honors me, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep a remnant. There's going to be a remnant that honors me, but it's going to look like no one honors me. So I just want us to be reminded that when we ask, when is now the time, how long, O oh Lord, however you word that question, 
Just understand, most of the time, almost all of the time, you're not going to get an answer until it happens. So what we should do is instead turn to the God who knows the answer, even though He's not going to give us the answer. Also, it might be helpful to understand if you knew the answer, you probably wouldn't like it. You just probably would not like it. So they ask the question, when is this the time? They also ask it in a bit of a self-centered way. And most of our questions are self-centered, are they not? Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Guess what all of these apostles had in common? They were Israelites. They were Israelites. Ah, is this the time that you're going to restore us to the heyday? The United Kingdom, King David... Is this the time you're going to restore us? What about King Solomon? We had peace from our enemies. We had affluence. We had stuff. Man, all the nations looked to us and they were jealous of us. Man, are you going to restore the heyday? Are you going to restore the good old days? Jesus is going to answer that, but just be careful with that question as well. Ah, things were so much better back fill in the blank. I think if we were honest with ourselves, they probably weren't that much better back then. So be careful trying to restore that which is gone. Be careful about trying to restore the good old days. And be careful with this self-centered, ah, yes, we'll be part of the kingdom. We're going to be the ones that everyone else is jealous of. We're going to have peace from our enemies. We're going to have prosperity. What is this the time when everything becomes good and comfortable and nice for us again? That's the question. That's an age-old question. People have been asking it for a long time, and I think if we're honest, we ask it again today. Jesus answers the question. The third main stopping point we have this morning in verses 7 and 8 is this. We see a Copernican-like shift. A Copernican-like shift. I stole that term from a pa- another pastor. Copernican-like shift. And what he means by that is there was a guy named Copernicus once upon a time. Everybody believed that the earth was at the center of the solar system. That we were at the center of the solar system. And a guy by the name of Copernicus wrote a little essay and said, Nope, we're not. The sun is at the center of the solar system. We actually travel around the sun. And it causes a monumental shift in the mind to realize, oh, we're not the center of the solar system. Something else is. And so what we're going to see is that is what Jesus is causing His apostles to do and to be reminded of, is to shift their minds. You're not the center of the universe. God is. So he says to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed. You don't need to know. You're not the center of the universe. God knows. And even if you did know, He's not going to change His mind because the Father has fixed the times and the seasons. He says it's not for you to know. He also says that God is in authority, not us. So the Father has fixed it by His own authority. And then we get to Acts 1 verse 8. So it's not for you to know the times. It's not for you to know the seasons. It's not for you to be in authority. 
It's not for you to change the Father's mind. The Father has fixed the times and the seasons by His own authority. So don't worry about what I'm doing now. Don't worry about if you're going to be part of the kingdom that wins. Don't worry about that. Instead, and then we get to verse 8. What are we supposed to do instead? What's, what's happening instead? And you might think that there's going to be some commands instead. So don't worry about this. Don't worry about times and seasons. It's not for you to know times and seasons. Instead, do this. Right? But here's the thing in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. There are no commands. Greek is very clear on when there's a command, an instruction, or when it's just telling us how, uh, how the world is. All right? And there's only two verbs in uh, Acts 1.8, and then neither one of them are commands. They're told two things. Two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to receive power. Passive, it's going to happen to you, apostles. You're going to receive power. And number two, you will be my witnesses. So you will receive power, and you'll be my witnesses. And this is what's going to be the case through the rest of Acts. We're going to see here in a couple weeks that the Holy Spirit comes and the apostles have power. And they have power for the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see some shocking things. All right? If you're not familiar with where we're going in the book of Acts, we're going to see things you're like, whoa, what just happened? And hopefully we'll, have, we'll be able to talk through it and work through it together. But in Acts chapter 2, the apostles are going to instantaneously be able to speak languages they have never heard or studied. And other people are going to hear them be like, wait, he's talking in my language. How's that happening? Right? You're also going to see that people who were stingy and trying to restore Israel, they're going to become very generous with their possessions. That's going to be interesting. So they're going to receive power. You're going to see, as we walk through the book of Acts, we're going to see the apostles do miraculous healings, very similar to what Jesus did. They're going to have power. You're going to even see a raising from the dead by somebody not named Jesus. You're going to see that in the book of Acts. right? So they had power. But it wasn't power just for power's sake. Right? It wasn't power from themselves. Like, hey, you're pretty awesome. No, no, no. When the Holy Spirit, when the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He's going to give you power. So it's not their power, and it's also not power just for power's sake. Right? So if we ever just want power for power's sake, we have missed the points. The power is for a purpose. And the purpose is to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. To be witnesses. So you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. There is an indwelling, compelling of Christians to witness what Christ has done for us. It just wells up within us. And it is our cowardice, it is our timidity, it is, it's just our flesh that pauses us and causes us to not do it more often. But the Holy Spirit empowers us and wells up within us to be witnesses to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the book of Acts. 
The apostles are going to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. People are going to see their power and try to worship the apostles, and the apostles say, no, 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 we are doing this in the name of Christ. We are doing this to point you to Jesus. Make sure you don't miss this. We are pointing you to Jesus. So they're going to be witnesses. They're going to be witnesses for Jesus. And he even tells them where they're going to be witnesses. He says at the end of verse 8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, it would be fun to do a little geography lesson here, but I think it would actually be more helpful to understand the types of people who are in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But we're going to see this. This is what is going to happen in the books of, book of Acts, right? So first, they're going to witness in Jerusalem. Right? And that's where they are. They're, they're in Jerusalem. They're in the region of Judea. And so you might think, oh, well, you're just... It's just easy, right? It's there in Jerusalem. Like these people, they know you have the Bible, you have the Old Testament. They were there, they saw Jesus, they heard his teaching. Man, the work's going to be easy in Jerusalem and Judea. You're in Israel. No, the work was not easy. They had to speak boldly in Jerusalem. We're going to see in Acts chapter 2, the first sermon that we're going to have in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 2, and Peter's going to stand up and tell the people in Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem, this is Jesus. He's the promised one from the Old Testament, and you just killed Him. You just killed God the Son, the promised Savior of the world from the Old Testament. You just killed Him. That's a strong statement. It, it's so strong that uh, the apostles are going to suffer for it. They will suffer in Jerusalem. So much so, uh, James, we believe from church history, that James actually becomes uh, the, the pastor of a church, a Christian church in Jerusalem, and he is eventually killed for his witness and his pastoring in Jerusalem. In Judea, they witness and they suffer for witnessing. They suffer all throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see stonings. We're going to see imprisonments. We're going to see a shipwreck. We're going to see getting bit by a poisonous snake. We're going to see all kinds of different sufferings of the apostles. They were His witnesses. The easiest place for them to be witnesses turned out to be Samaria. They show up in Samaria... They preach the good news, and the Samaritans come together of one accord. They are freed from demon possession, and they pretty quickly receive the gospel and turn to Christ. The hard part was going and opening their mouth, because Samaria, Samaria was the last place the apostles would want to go. It was the last place the apostles would want to go. They hated the Samaritans. We'll talk about that as we get there. They hated the Samaritans. So it was a bit ironic that it was the easiest place to reach. The hardest part was to get the apostles there and to start to speak and to preach. And then, of course, to the ends of the earth, Rome. We're going to end with the Apostle Paul in the midst of a trial in Rome. That's where we're going to end the book of Acts, in Rome. Away from Jerusalem, away from Israel, the powerhouse of the day, the Roman Empire, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to be a witness to Caesar as he's imprisoned in Rome. 
So understand that uh, a lot of this is, uh, is demographic. It's not necessarily geographic. So if we're going to apply it to us as we walk through the book of Acts, as we apply it, we've got to think, okay, where's, where's like the center of religiosity where people think they know the truth about God but have rejected it? Man, does that not feel like the Bible Belt in a lot of ways? People understand, they know, intellectually know the truths of the Scriptures, but so often have rejected it and have instead replaced it with a false gospel. What about people we don't like? Our Samaritans. What about people we don't like? The hardest part is for us to like go and start a relationship with them and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. A lot of times though, those that we don't like and they seem unreachable to us, sometimes they're the most receptive to the gospel. And then what about the ends of the earth? There's a lot of barriers to the ends of the earth, right? I gotta like go to them. I've got to learn a language, perhaps. I have to endure suffering and hardship. They may even throw me in prison like they threw the Apostle Paul in prison. So it's hard everywhere. Everywhere that we are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, it is difficult. So difficult that that word witnesses, the word behind that, the Greek word behind that, is where we get our word for martyr. The word witness and the word dying as a witness became almost synonymous because all the apostles, the only exception is, is James, or uh, the only exception is the apostle John, but he all but was killed and then he was exiled and then yada yada. It became synonymous with dying as a witness. And so we, when we talk about someone dying as a witness, we use the word martyr. Comes from the same Greek word. So we need bold, powerful witness to death if necessary. Bold, powerful witness to death if necessary. So what do we do with this? Again, a lot of this is where we're going. Hopefully, I've just intrigued you. Like, wow, there's a lot, Max. But where are we going with this? Number one, we got to think about that question and Christ's answer. So the first thing we need to do is abandon self-centered fake Christianity. We have to abandon self-centered fake Christianity. If, if as we approach the Scriptures, or as we sing songs, or as we gather together as a church, or as we go help someone else, or as we, if we're ever doing that in a self-centered way, we need to reject that. That is not the gospel. The gospel is to be witnesses of Jesus Christ to those who desperately need it. We must abandon self-centered fake Christianity. Secondly, if you are a Christian, understand that you have power within you. Okay? I don't know if you're ever going to raise somebody from the dead. If you tell me you did, I will be skeptical just to warn you up front. I will be a little skeptical. I don't know if you're going to do a miraculous healing. I don't know if you're miraculously going to uh, remove a demon from someone. I don't know if you're going to do those things. But you do have power. If you are a Christian, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, grants you power to be bold, authoritative witnesses for Jesus Christ. 
We are not those who shirk back. We are not those who have to be timid. We are those who can boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So understand that we have power. Also understand that this power is not to bring glory to ourselves, but to God. Right? So if at any point, so imagine you did heal somebody, and somebody's like, whoa, you must be awesome. Like, no, it, I'm freaked out too, and uh, it's amazing. But listen, we've got to glorify God. We have to understand that this is from Christ, and we have to understand that this is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Also understand that any power that you have or any power that you receive did not begin with you in mind and it is not to end with you. God, where we started this whole thing, God is on mission. God is on mission to seek and to save the lost. And so if you are a Christian, your mission is also to be part of the mission of God to seek and save the lost. Not that you are able to save, but as a witness that Christ is able to save. So we are to go and be powerful witnesses for Christ. It does not start with us. It does not end with us. We are to be witnesses of the powerful working of God to save His people, and we are to be witnesses of the powerful working of God through us to save His people. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, so often we want to know where all this is going. We want to know when, we want to know where, we want to know how. We cry out to You with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? We cry out, when is this going to happen? When are You going to restore me? When are You going to restore us? Restore my position, restore my job, restore my marriage, restore my family, restore my son, restore my daughter. When is this going to happen? And God, very often, instead of telling us when and how, You instead just show us Yourself. And invite us to trust You. To put our faith in You. And God, I am thankful for the picture that we get in Revelation 5 where You show us what will happen in heaven. That there will be people who have been ransomed by Your blood. A people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so God, You call us to be witnesses. If we truly are Yours, we will be Your witnesses. And we can trust that it will be successful. It will be successful to the point that there will be people from every tribe, every language, and every nation who on the last day will bow their knee and worship You as the one true God. God, help us to see what that looks like for each one of us. God, maybe the Holy Spirit is awakening some to go and talk to someone very specific. God, maybe there's somebody here who's like,
figuring out and that you're revealing yourself to that they're not even a Christian. They've just been self-centered in all of this. So they need to turn and trust in you for the first time. God, maybe others are being called to overseas missions. Maybe others are feel like they're called and compelled to be more of a witness in their current workplace or in their current neighborhood or down the street or to reach out to the least of these or whatever. God, I pray that you would awaken this within us, not just in this moment, but this week and this month and this year. God, as we endeavor in this life together, seeking what we would be doing on mission with you. In Jesus' name, amen.